I'm really excited today because the kids are in the service with us. Usually they go away to their classes with Next Gen Ministries and uh, here at The Story. Once in a while we give our teachers, our volunteers and staff the, the day off. But more importantly than giving those hardworking people the day off is having kids in the service with us. This is super important that our kids who will one day not be kids anymore, they'll graduate out of these kids programs, that they will know what we expect them to graduate into and they'll be familiar with the feel of a service. It, it matters, y'all. This is not just a punt. This is not a day off. This is, this is essential to your kids, our kids' faith formation. And so remember, every time we baptize a kid, like we all commit to being like a parent to that kid, right? So all the kids here are all of our kids. And so if their noise today bothers you in any way, I kindly invite you to find yourself another church. And uh, truly, and this is not the place for you. I love you. I love you in the Lord. I don't really like you. I love you in the Lord. And uh, we love the noise of kids more than we love you. So that's the facts of the matter. So kids are going to make noise. And kids, if you're here and you make a little noise and people shush you, you just say, the pastor loves me more than you. And then you'll be fine. All right, so uh, we're happy that you're here. Kids, you weren't here last Sunday, probably. You were in your classes, and so you might have missed when I talked about the prophet Elijah from the Old Testament. A super important story because Elijah teaches us something about prayer on the day he's having probably the worst day of his life. And I don't know what a bad day looks like for you. It's all relative. Um, for me, a bad day isn't really that bad. I'm so spoiled by God. Most of us are, but a bad day for me is like a backache and they forgot to take the goat cheese off my salad. Like, that's a bad day for me, generally speaking. Um, but Elijah was having a, a seriously bad day. He was um, on the run. Queen Jezebel had put a hit out on him, had put a price on his head, and so he was on a run. And he was out in the wilderness all by himself, no friends, no family, alone, forgotten, hungry, thirsty, depressed. He wanted to die. That was a really bad day. But it was at his lowest moment when he just wanted it all to end that God showed up. And God, interestingly enough, didn't show up until Elijah was still and quiet. Seems like in this story, God wanted to teach Elijah something about when he shows up and how he speaks. And this matters because kids and adults, prayer isn't just about speaking. Prayer is about listening too. And so God says to Elijah, as he's laying there all sad and depressed and hungry, he says, if you want to see me, get up and step out of that cave you're in and go outside and I will pass by. And sure enough, Elijah goes up and stands outside the cave and he looks and the Lord passes by without saying anything. He just walks by and makes eye contact. And right behind the Lord, there is this violent, furious windstorm that blows so hard that it, it splits the rocks in two. Mountains are torn one from another. But God did not speak to Elijah in the windstorm. And after the windstorm, there was a mighty earthquake that shook the ground beneath the prophet's feet. And Elijah, as he felt the ground shaking, listened for God, but he couldn't hear him. God didn't speak in the earthquake. She's out. And then, there was, and then there was, after the earthquake, a fire, a furious, raging inferno. And it blazed all around him, and he listened for God, but God didn't speak to Elijah in the fire. And after the fire, after the fire and the earthquake and the windstorm, there was the sound of sheer stillness. And it was in the stillness that God spoke. And God spoke to Elijah in a whisper and told him how to live. 
And this matters, y'all, because it seems God wants us to know the way that he speaks to us isn't the way we often want to hear him. It seems like God wants us to know that anybody can come into your chaos. Anybody can come into your disorganized, discombobulated, a thousand different directions, distracted life. Anybody can yell at you over the noise you surround yourself when you're distracted and pulled a thousand directions. Anybody can scream at you, but only somebody who really wants your attention will wait until you're still. Only somebody who craves your affection will wait until you stop. And only somebody who wants you close enough to hear them will speak in a whisper. And that's how God speaks to us. And that, as I said last week, is one of the reasons we can't hear his answers to our prayers. But still, as comforting as that is, it does beg the question, y'all, if God is so affectionate and so tender, if he loves us so much, then why do we still have to wait to get answers to our prayers? Why do we have to suffer and wonder whether he's there, whether he's listening, whether what we're praying for will ever come to pass? Why can't, if he's, not, if he's that tender with us, why can't he just do it already? And I do not approach these questions lightly because I know there's real pain behind these questions. These are some of the most common questions you ask by email and, and, and messenger and all these things I got from you. And this is real pain. And some of these um, emails took the, form, the same form and came from the same demographic. And I don't want to out anyone in particular, but there was about four or five emails that I received that had the same flavor to them. And three of you asked me not to share anything about yourself with the congregation. So I'm not going to, if you're sitting here worried as you, I'm not going to, but there were, I'll summarize it. Okay. So there was like um, four or five emails from women who are in their forties and they all said the same basic concerns. I'll summarize. This is my paraphrase. We're going to read here for as long as I can remember. I just assumed that I would get married and have kids. It didn't happen in my early 20s like it did for many of my friends. So in my late 20s, I thought, it's cool. It's all about God's timing, not mine. I'm fine. But then in my early 30s, I thought, okay, God, any day now. And then in my late 30s, I cried out like King David in the Psalms. How long, oh Lord, must I wait? And now I'm in my 40s and still not married. I'm starting to think I should just give up on my dream because God clearly doesn't want me to be a wife and a mother. And this, this is real pain that people in this room, our sisters and some of our brothers too, go to bed with every night and wake up with every morning. The fear of growing old alone. And so I do not want to discount that, that pain, right? Because this is, uh, this is a real concern. And so what do we do with this, y'all, when God makes us wait? It's heartbreaking, I think, for a couple of reasons. And the first reason that's heartbreaking is because I feel like the church, and myself included, I feel like we should apologize on behalf of all Christianity to every single person who ever tried to be a Christian, because we have, instead of teaching young generations the New Testament vision for humanity, which is vastly superior to our cultural notions of true love and falling in love and walking down the aisle and living happily ever after in marriage and family, as though that's the holy grail of God's desire for you, 
We have caved. We have totally conformed to that idea. And in so doing, we have forsaken the New Testament vision for humanity, which is so much better. The New Testament doesn't say the mission of your life is to meet the right one and walk down the aisle and get married. And when you do, you've lived a full life. And the New Testament never, ever says that if you don't do that, then you're somehow living a life that's less full or less good or less whole. On the contrary, read the New Testament. It's not single people that the New Testament pities. It's married people. (laughs) Truly. Paul says, I wouldn't wish marriage on my worst enemy. But if if you can't live faithful to God without being married, then go get married, whatever, whatever it takes to keep you out of hell, basically, is what marriage is for. The real Christians were single. Repeat after me, if you will. Jesus never married. That's all you need to know, single people, truly. That's all you need to know. He never had kids. How do you think he got so much done with his life? Seriously. How do you think he was so accomplished? How did he travel so much? Like, he didn't have kids, of course. All right? So there's so much value in singleness that is inherently true to your existence as a Christian. And we've, all we've said to young Christians is, go and get married. Find the right one. Like, that's the goal. And it's not. It's not. It's not. One day I pray the church will finally get that and once again exalt singleness over this secular view of marriage as the holy life. Now, there's two couples in the room right now whose weddings I'm doing soon. And God bless you. I'm so grateful <laughs> for the opportunity. Whatever, whatever works for you, just, that's fine. Um, I, I just think, I think we have missed this. And I think uh, it's caused us to raise up a bunch of people who think that they're missing out. And they're not, Really. Marriage and family, the nuclear family, this ideal that we've created is only vital to your life insofar as you understand this life on this earth to be all there is. And the Christian worldview says this is just, this is a foretaste. This is not even an appetizer to the meal we're going to have. Like this is less than an appetizer. This is just the beginning of the beginning, right? So we got to have some perspective. And I think that's probably, that word is probably what I kept coming back to this week when I thought about why. Why still do we have to wait for these things that feel so urgent, that feel so um, important? And I think the, the word is perspective. We don't have the same perspective God has. And especially in terms of time, right? We, we, don't, we lack perspective when it comes to time. The psalmist says, this is King David, he says that a thousand years in God's sight are like, uh, day that's just gone by or like a, a night watch, which was a three or four hour shift in the night. And so a thousand years for God who's outside of time goes by like that. And sometimes we can't see that the way God does. And we count the days and we're just like languishing, just, just twisting in the wind here. God, where are you? And God's like, I've got a plan. Just be patient. It's just been, what has it been? Like a blink of an eye, right? And you're like, no, it's been 10 years. You know, that kind of, that kind of thing. And, and sometimes we lack a heavenly Perspective, and I think I don't think God judges us for that. I think He's empathetic toward us, but I think it helps us to understand that that we don't have the same kind of perspective. I was having lunch uh, last week with a guy who goes to church here, and he's one of those guys that I think most men kind of want to be. He's in his fifties, um, and he, everybody knows his name. He's kind of a rock star locally. Uh, he's a legend in his in his field. He's uh, very successful. 
Um, he's very generous. Um, everybody hits him up for money, and he's always giving his money away. And, and uh, he's very generous, philanthropic. He's got a great wife. Um, everybody says, oh, he's one of those guys like, you married up, you know, that kind of guy. And he's got four kids who all, you know, love the Lord, and they're all living upright lives and all that stuff. And, and so he's one of those guys that seems like he's, all, he's just charmed. You know, he's just got it all. And as I had lunch with him, we were talking about prayer. And he got very real with me. He was like, people see one thing when they look at me, but they don't know. They don't know who I really am. They see a faithful man who talks about God a lot. They don't know that there have been whole years where I didn't pray at all. Like he said, I've waffled on prayer my whole life because it's never really seemed to me to be a good use of my time. It's never really worked for me. He said, my wife, on the other hand, she's prayed since the day I met her. She's never stopped praying. She persists in her prayer. But, but me, I just, I don't know. I just can't. I haven't been able to, to, to pray as persistently. And, and then he said, uh, but I got to tell you, Pastor, the reason I invited you to lunch was because uh, as we were talking about prayer in, in the series. I, I was going through some boxes in my attic, and I found from a box 30-plus years ago, the first year of our marriage, we kept a prayer book together. This was something we agreed to do as premarital counseling, and we kept a prayer book together, and we prayed together in the first year of our marriage. We didn't do it after that, but we prayed the first year of our marriage together, and we wrote down the things we were praying for, and he talked about how his jaw kept dropping as he looked through the list of things they prayed for together 30-plus years ago, and he said every single one had been answered yes. And he said, I felt this incredible sense of shame come over me because my whole life I've said prayer doesn't work. It's not a good use of my time. It's not effective. I can do other things. But here he was evaluating the long term instead of just in the day-to-day. And he said, in the day-to-day trenches of my life, I, I couldn't see it. I didn't have perspective. But after 30 years, I could look back and see. We prayed for a marriage that would honor God and reflect his heart. Check. We prayed for success in my career so that we could be generous to the city. Check. We prayed for kids who love Jesus. Check, 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 check. There's four of them. We prayed for a family member. I can't get too specific here, but a family member who had an addiction, and we prayed for him to be free from that. Check. We prayed for a health of another relationship that was broken. Check. It took time, but check, check, check. All of them. He said, it gave me a new sense of appreciation for prayer and for persisting. And so, this is interesting to me when we grasp this perspective, how differently we can see this topic. So, it doesn't take away any of the pain. And I do want to address some of that pain that comes uh, so easily when we, when we don't feel like our prayers are being answered. Jesus does address it for us, Thankfully. He's, he's always, 20 different times he says, when you don't get an answer, keep praying, keep praying, keep searching. So persistence does matter to Jesus, so much so that he tells two entire parables just about this question, which tells us that we aren't the first ones to ask these questions. People in Jesus' day were asking them too. And he tells two different stories entirely about this question, why does God make us wait? Right? So, uh, those stories are in Luke, and if you have your Bibles, you can get your Bible out, but, but it's in your study guides as well. I'm, I'm going to make it real easy. It's on, the, it's on the screen as well. The first one's from Luke chapter 11, and it starts in verse 5. And this is the parable of the unrelenting friend. And then Jesus said to them, suppose you have a friend 
and you go to him at midnight and you say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine is on a journey and he's come to me and I have no food to offer him. This doesn't seem like a big deal. This was a major, major issue in a hospitality culture like first century Judaism. This was, would have been a major slap in the face to not have something to offer your friend who showed up at your house. And so he's got to get his hands on some bread. This is ultimate. So he knocks on the door in the middle of the night and uh, you, you're, this is you in the story. He says, imagine you are the guy. You knock on the door in the middle of the night. Your friend answers from inside. Don't bother me. Go away. The door is already locked. My children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. Now, any parent in the room is empathizing with this guy right now. Because once you get the kids asleep, like that's a holy space right there. You know, like. This is the promised land of parenthood. Like they're sleeping, don't do anything. And this was especially true in that time. If you ever looked at these first century houses as, these, as they've excavated them, there was this flat space right in front of the door. And it was that flat space where they think that kids slept. And so you'd have to step over them to get to the door. It'd be like this whole disruptive thing. You would surely wake them up. And so this was a problem for this father. And Jesus said, I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, Like, he doesn't care about you that much. (laughs) He's not that good of a friend. Yet, because of your shameless audacity, because you won't stop knocking and waking up his kids, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need to make you go away. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you for everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And then we have it. Next, there we go. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish? Now, he's appealing to the fathers in the room. Sometimes we can sometimes make Jesus boring. I don't think Jesus was boring. I think he was, I think he was a guy hanging out with guys. And I think as guys do, Jesus kind of made subtle jokes with his friends and stuff like that. And I think when he appeals to the fathers, it's kind of one of those funny little moments. I think he says, which of you fathers, if your son asked for a fish, would give him a snake instead? And about half the fathers went, I would totally, I would totally do that. (laughs) Because what do we do as fathers? We scare our kids. That's our job. Like I hatch the most like intricate plans. Like I put way too much thought into how to scare my kids every week, at least at least once. I don't know why I feel like that's a duty of mine. I'm not a perfect father. He says, which of you, if your son asked for an egg, would give him a scorpion? Eh, maybe, but I'm scared of scorpions too. Maybe not that one. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, you know the right thing to do. How much more will your father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? That's story number one. Number two is a few chapters later, it's the story of the persistent widow. One thing to keep in mind here is that widows were ultimately vulnerable members of society. They had no one to vouch for them, no one to look after them. They depended on this social security net that God put in place in the Old Testament. And Jesus told his disciples about a a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. What does that tell you? Some of the disciples were already wondering if they should give up praying. So you're not alone. Even people that walk with Jesus felt the same at times. And Jesus said, in a certain town, there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time, the judge refused. 
But finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. So this judge is the worst of the worst. Not only is he not good at his job, he doesn't care, he's not just, which seems to be, you know, a priority for judges. Like they should be just, have a sense of justice. He doesn't fear God, doesn't care what people think. Now he's also worried about being attacked by an old lady, like (laughs) in the middle of the night or something. And so he's like, okay, fine, I'll do it. I'll give her justice, whatever, just go away. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith? on the earth. All right. So, for Jesus, you can take this or leave it, but for Jesus, there is a relationship between your persistence in prayer and the effectiveness of your prayers. It's a really shocking relationship, actually, because for Jesus, according to Jesus, eventually, for one who has faith, for one who persists in prayer, even through doubt and darkness, if you persist in prayer, eventually the answer from God will be yes. It's amazing. that eventually you will get your answer and it will be yes if you keep praying. This seems to be what Jesus is saying. Now, um, if you're vaguely familiar with Jesus' parables, I need to explain something to you. Um, You might be confused right now because these parables, usually in the parables, Jesus' main character is uh, is kind of a demonstration of the heart of God. Those are called comparing parables. You think about examples of that, the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan is is an example of God's heart and his character, right? Now, uh, the father in 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 the prodigal son story, right? Another example of how God is. But here, Jesus tells a different kind of parable. And there are some parables that are comparing parables. There are some parables that are contrasting parables. These two stories were contrasting parables where he says, even though, even if a a bad friend who doesn't want to wake his kids up, if even he will give you bread, how much more will God who is good be sure to give you bread? If even a bad judge who doesn't care about justice or goodness or fairness, if even that judge will deliver justice to the widow, how much more can you trust that God who is inherently good, that he will come through for you when you pray for justice? Now, these are what contrasting parables do. All right, so the answer eventually for those persist is yes but the question I think that remains on the table for us today is if the answer is yes eventually and why wait what's the hold up y'all on a video this week I put on Facebook I, I said sometimes it feels to people like God is like a bully or like a mean cousin who's bigger than you holding you down until you say please enough until you use the right words, until you beg for mercy, and then I'll give you what you want. Then I'll release you. I think some people have that perception of God. You know, if the answer is going to be yes, then why wait? 
I think there's a lot of people in this room that actually wonder that in the day-to-day. You don't look like you are right now. Right now you look pretty put together, but I know you're just really good at faking it. Because we all are. Our gift of compartmentalization is incredible. And I know there's real pain in this room, and you're wondering how long, oh Lord. I think there are a few things to keep in mind as we consider this. And if you're someone who's really hurting, I just ask you to open your mind and heart with me for just a minute. I think God is up to something when he causes us to wait, and it's something that's for our own good. So there's three things I think God's doing. First is he is working with our desires, really, to renew them and simplify them. We've all got a bunch of things we think we need, right? Like we, that's what most of the stuff we pray about is, is all about, is stuff we need. And, and yet, uh, in the light of day, um, we spend a whole night praying for stuff we think we need in the light of day. That need was actually just a want. You ever struggle to distinguish between something you essentially need and something you just kind of want? That's a struggle for all of us, like especially when we're kids. And, um, and as a father, I think with my kids, one of my roles is to what? Help them distinguish between needs and wants. They love it when I do this. It's their favorite thing. It's really not. They would rather, they would rather when they come to me and say, Daddy, 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 I need this. Ten minutes ago, backstage, Daddy, Daddy, I need this. What is it? You need it? What is it? Uh, it's V-Bucks on Fortnite. I need some V-Bucks. It's like you need it. We need to re- revisit the nature of the word need. Because if you need something, it means you will die if you don't get it. Are you sure this is a need and not just a want? And uh, they go, thank you, Daddy. That's right. No, that's not what they say. Uh, but as a, as a father, that's my job. And I'm not trying to exaggerate when I say that it is just about the worst way to raise up a human to not help them distinguish between needs and wants. It's low-key child abuse to raise a kid who doesn't know the difference between a need and a want because you're setting them up for a life of misery. Because they're not able to distinguish between something they need and they want, they think that their needs are their wants and their wants are their needs. And, and so they pray for their wants as though they're needs, and they're never content with what they have. There's always something more they want or someone else they want to be. And we're setting them up for this kind of slavery to this. And so helping them to distinguish between the two is, I think, part of what it means to be a loving father. And I think sometimes when God doesn't say no, but he says wait. Sometimes he doesn't hit stop. He hits pause. I think it's to teach us the difference. Because some of the things you pray for as needs are really just wants. And then you, you discover it yourself. Like when God says, wait, wait, and doesn't answer it right away. And two weeks later, you're, you're not even praying about it anymore. Because you're like, okay, I can live without that. And that's freedom. That's joy. Right? You're not a slave to those things that you thought were needs and are not. And so God is like a father to us, and I think that sometimes he does that um, for us. Uh, he says, uh, the psalmist writes in, uh, do we have that passage from Psalms 37.4? He says that if you delight in the Lord, then he will give you the desires of your heart, y'all. Memorize this verse. It's on your study guides. Delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. This happens, and it happens in this order. Delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart because when you delight in the Lord, the desires of your heart reflect him. And in the end, his answer is always yes. 
The second thing I think God does for us is he purifies our priorities. And this sounds very sweet, but it is not. This is painful. Anytime you purify something, you're doing what? You're putting it through some extreme conditions. Think about boiling water to purify it. Or think about power washing uh, the side of your house. You're like abusing the siding on your house to get it clean. Or, or think about what God says to King Zechariah, um, uh, not to, King, to the prophet Zechariah. In the book of Zechariah, he says, uh, he says, as silver is purified by fire, I will purify you. And so listen, sometimes the, the, the times God says wait it's a little bit like discipline, which feels awful in the moment, you know? But it's for our own good. Sometimes it's to really test our hearts, to see what it is we're all about. Throughout the Bible, the characters in the Bible are always tested by God to see what's really in their hearts. From Joshua and the, and the people wandering in the wilderness looking at the promised land going, how long? Why, why do we have to wait? To, you know, um, the New Testament, Paul as well, waiting for the kingdom of God to come in its fullness. Sometimes the waiting is meant to test your priorities. And until they are in order, God uh, calls upon his people to wait. All right, so uh, he tests our desires. He purifies our priorities. Um, and as an example of this, uh, I don't know if you noticed, in the stories Jesus told, he does in fact say that all the answers are yes, but he also is very clear about what people are asking for. Did you notice? What do the people ask for in Jesus' stories? They ask for bread. And at the end of that story, he says, when you ask for the Holy Spirit, and then in the other story, she's asking for justice. And these are the prayers of people whose priorities are in the right place. And sometimes when we put superficial things first, he will discipline and test us until we get to the place that we can praise him when he says no as much as we praise him when he says yes. That we can praise him when we wait as much as we praise him when everything's going our way. And that's how you know when God's on the throne of your heart. The third and final thing that I think God does when he causes us to wait is uh, he accelerates our maturity. He accelerates our maturity. Uh, so he is uh, in this way growing us <laughs> five years ago, yesterday, actually, I realized uh, yesterday was a five-year anniversary of my family's move to Houston. Five years ago, we moved to Houston from Kansas City. And I'm happy now. However, I'm a little ashamed to admit this, especially this is the video sermon, so I'm a little ashamed to have this made, you know, forever online. But... You have no idea how many times Gio and I prayed to God to send us anywhere but Houston, Texas. And that's the only city we said don't send us to. Truly. We knew a little bit about Houston. We'd been married in Houston in 1999, which is crazy. We were married last century. That's, that's bizarre. We had to get it done before Y2K. You never knew what was going to happen. But... These kids have no idea. Um, so, uh, 
Houston, Texas was like the one place we told God. I had just become a Christian in 2013. This was 2014. I said, God, I am ready to serve you like I've never served you before in Denver or in Nashville or Chicago. God, if it must be this way, I'll even serve you in Dallas. (laughs) But not Houston, Lord. And here we are. Houston, Texas, five years later. And you know what? We're happier than we've ever thought possible. We feel more at home than we've ever felt anywhere. We're leading a church that's more awesome than I ever thought a church could be. Like, we love this swamp, a city of Houston. <laughs> we love it, it's home. But we never could have been convinced five years ago that we would feel that way today. Because God had to test us and grow us up. Well, we're praying like children then. God will serve you, but if you send us to the right place. To grow up in God is to say, God, I'll serve you wherever you send me because serving you is my first priority. The rest is just geography. Right? And so uh, growing up in faith, I think, is maybe the most important function of, uh, of waiting. Some of you skeptics are still hung up on the why question. Okay, he grows us up, but for what reason? And I'll tell you. He grows you in faith because he has bigger, better dreams for you then you're capable of dreaming now. The things you think are ultimate for you, trust me, they pale in comparison to the ultimate dream God is dreaming for you and waiting for you to wake up to, right? Sometimes the answer isn't yes until the question's the right question, until the question's big enough, good enough, great enough, for God to say yes to it. Because we spend our days, day after day, praying for little things as though they're big things, praying for success in our career. God's like, that's a good little thing you're praying for, but I made you for purpose, which is greater, infinitely greater than success. You're praying for love and marriage and a nuclear family, and God's like, I've got something better. It's a heavenly family. And it's not just for a while, it's forever, right? And and so when God's kingdom comes to earth in its fullness, marital status will not be on the application. And, and, and what's even better is that the things we fear the most, when God's kingdom comes, we will see that they've been disarmed, disabled. Death itself has been demoted, from an end to a beginning, from a resting place to a passageway. Death is no longer the end, it's a homecoming. It's a celebration of the true beginning of your real life in God. For this reason, no believer should ever fear growing old alone because no Christian has ever, ever died alone. There is a heavenly host welcoming them home. In this generation and in every generation that came before, 
soul. He's testing you. He's purifying you. Simplifying your desires to show you his will, which is so much better for you. So don't give up. The psalm uh, in Isaiah, it says uh, that those who wait on the Lord will be renewed in their strength, that they will mount up like eagles. That one day they'll learn to fly, that they'll run and they won't grow weary. Listen, don't give up. Persist in your prayer. Press on even when you feel like your words are just dissipating into the air around you. Keep praying. Keep listening. He speaks in a whisper, but his answer eventually is always yes. So put your hope in him and in nowhere and in nobody else because he created you for more than you can even fathom. Let's pray together. Jesus, give us strength. Help us because this is hard. Especially when we feel like in the day-to-day trenches and the noise and the distractions of life, like no prayer is being answered, that nothing really matters, that maybe we're just random molecules bumping into each other in a random universe that's indifferent to our prayers. God, wake us up and give us perspective to see that you are good and just with us. And that, Lord, eventually, when we put our faith in you, your answer is yes. Help us to hold on, especially the one in this room whose heart is broken. The ones who toss and turn at night because they feel forsaken. Renew our strength. Holy Spirit, come into us. Come, Holy Spirit, and make us new and give us a new dream a new vision and a new prayer to pray. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name that we do pray. Amen.